0: Hello, 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 my new friends. Step inside, have a seat, get comfortable, and allow me to introduce myself. My name's Alfred Faber, and I will be your guide on this sonic journey, this exploration of everything sound. Now I hear you. I hear you. You're saying, shut up, Alfie. We're here for the big names. The super talented, well-articulated professionals i.e. the complete opposite of you, not this random film student who stammers about sound like an absolute dingus, but seeing as this is the first episode, whatever, I'm going to introduce myself first. I'm Alfred Faber, hi again, I'm a student at the Australian Film, Television and Radio School here in Sydney, Australia, and I'm entering my final year, and I'm really into sound, especially sound in film, but also just in general. I wrote a whole thing about why and how I got into film sound and stuff, but um, I'm just going to do the podcast equivalent of dramatically tearing up a speech and improvising. A warning that I'm the last person who should be hosting a podcast. Uh, I stammer. I've been told I've got a really boring, monotone voice. I get nervous in interviews. I'm not very articulate, but um, whatever, I love sound, and I started a podcast about it because I just wanted an excuse to call up, you know, interesting, talented people and say, Hey, can I talk to you about sound and then share what they say with other people in the hopes that they find it as inspiring as I did. However, I'm going to be interviewing all different types of people, not just soundies. I'm going to talk to directors, editors, Sound theorists, installation artists, I'm just fascinated with how people combine sound and other media to create an experience that's different to if it was just by itself. The idea for this episode in particular uh, came as a result of me meeting Fury Road's sound recordist, Ben Osmo, about a year ago. Uh, I, I always adored the film, and I met with him when trying to wrangle some work experience with Soundies in Sydney. Uh, we had a coffee, and he told me some stories about the production sound on Fury Road, and I was just fascinated. Like, I mean, also, have you even seen that movie? It is phenomenal. Get used to me gushing about it, because that's what I'm going to do this whole episode. Um, I was originally just going to interview Ben, uh, but the more people I talked to, the more I heard about it, the more I read, I decided that... The story of this film deserves a whole hour dedicated to it because not only was the creation of the whole Mad Max franchise over several decades, a whole tale in itself, if you haven't seen it, it defines the word visceral. It maintains pace like no action film I've ever seen. What I love about film is the combining of all these different sensory stimuli to make something extraordinary. And I tell you, Fury Road combines them like no film other. If you haven't seen it yet, go now. Anyway, I'll shut up and get on to the interesting people. A warning that there were, there were a few issues with some of the sound recordings, but you know, when, when you've managed to get George Miller for an interview, you get what you get and you don't get upset. So we're gonna start the story not with Fury Road nor even with Mad Max 1 in 1979, nor even a decade or so before that, when George Miller first met Byron Kennedy at a filmmaking workshop in Melbourne. Byron would go on to become an essential figure in the creation of the Mad Max franchise, producing the first two films. Now, I'm gonna I'm gonna start this here story sometime back in the nineteen fifties, in the small town of Chinchilla, Queensland, where George grew up. I'll let him describe it.
1: The backstory is that we grew up in a place before the internet, before there was radio, so all of our time was spent in play, but with my brothers and I out in the bush, That was that's all there was, except for the Saturday matinee. And it was a ritual, it was, it was a secular ritual that every kid in the town, every kid in the district would would turn up to the cinema. It was the I think it must have been the early fifties, the thing this was the first version of the movie, the thing, and the and the local cinema owner put a box, a trunk painted black with a thing painted on a thing painted on it in white in white paint which dripped and put chains around it. That simple thing, every afternoon after school, everybody uh, would turn up and stare at this box and wonder what was in the thing. So a kind of hysteria developed in the town where everyone wanted to go to the thing. However, kids were defined by whether their parents would allow them to go to the thing because it was a scary movie or not. And we were we, our parents said, no, you can't really go to the thing, you're too young. So what we did was we snuck in underneath the screen in the cinema, like a lot of... A lot of buildings in Queensland they're up on stilts because it was it was cooler, and so we we listened to the thing that Saturday afternoon, not watch it, and it was really really interesting. It was much scarier when you listened to it when you kept the monster off the screen. Subsequently, when I saw the movie, a really really interesting thing happened. The Thing, the creature, this alien creature, was really badly done. This is before there was serious prosthetics. And he looked he looked like a man with kind of cabbage leaves on him. And very interestingly enough, the film was better received in Britain because the censorship was very strong on the horror and violence. So they cut out. Every time you saw the Thing, he'd appear momentarily and then they'd cut him out. Which made him much, much more scary, and the movie was a big disappointment to me when I actually saw it. So a lot of, a lot of storytelling I've subsequently realised and, and learned through, through, through the process of it is, in a sense, what you suggest, what you keep off the screen, the information you withhold, is often more powerful than what you see. That's. Pretty evident in just about every horror movie you see today. But so, so somehow I picked that up very early. Not that I ever had any intention of making films when I was young. It was just something I observed. Sound is definitely very powerful in that. I mean, I mean, people have said, and I think it's true, it's uh, that often drama is successful orchestration of the withholding of information. So, you're trying to orchestrate the unfolding of a story, trying to, trying to understand when, when the, in which moment do we most want the audience to know a particular bit of information. If you front load a story too much or you, you give them information at the wrong moment, the film can be very disjointed, and most most importantly, it is not in any way persuasive. So, that's one thing you learn in the process, in the editing, and so on, and in the way that you orchestrate the image and sound, and the two can be complementary, uh, and and they can be, and they can be very powerful if the, if they uh, if you if you're able to do that well. Uh, it's easy to say, very hard to do. It's your obligation as a filmmaker um, to be very comprehensive and to really, really think about sound as you do everything else. Film, or all stories, but particularly cinema, is apprehended by the entire uh, human being. It's visceral, it's emotional, it's intellectual, it's it's cultural you've got to, you've got to see your story in, in terms of cultural anthropology it's to a degree spiritual and mythological when it gets to to, to its highest level and nothing there is nothing that that you sort of hand over uh, to anyone else it's like uh, a conductor I, I i guess the best example is uh, is is a is a, is a making films is, is that you're a conductor. You have to understand all the instruments and find a way to bring them together cohesively and, and in a way that somehow has meaning and, and, and to, to an audience.
0: Let's fast forward to 1977. Byron and George making Mad Max is a story all in itself. But this is a podcast about sound, so I, I reckon we'll just keep it to that.
1: When I f- first started making films it was purely visual. I would draw them uh, I would certainly write them, but it was but but the initial thing uh, the, the initial impulse came visually when I made my first feature uh, with Byron, Byron Kennedy Byron was. Um, Started off as a self-taught cinematographer, but he was also obsessed with sound, and our abilities were very complementary. He was just always he was a great mimic of make making, he could make sounds of just about anything you like, you know, to mimic them, uh, and he was always listening to movies rather than watching them, even though he had he was able to, to see to see them, uh, at, you know, he had been a cameraman, but. When it came to Mad Max, we ran out of money and I ended up cutting the picture in the kitchen of an apartment that someone lent us and, and he was cutting the sound. Um, so I left it all to him and I didn't spend much time uh, listening to sound. I, I was mainly interested in pictures and I made the first Mad Max and the, and did even the last one. I always made them as silent movies. The idea was that if they they played as silent movies and they were coherent and you could read them as silent movies, then with the addition of sound, they were going to play that much more clearly and and persuasively. And then what happened when Byron died uh, uh, after Mad Max 2, you know, I suddenly thought, "Oh boy, I've got to, I've got to pay attention to sound now." And it, 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 exactly like working with composers, I'm not musical. though I, I, I studied piano or some, something when I was at school, it's just not in me. But but I got to work with some of the world's great composers over time. I, you know, John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, Marie Shah. and I made it my business to understand how to talk to them and began to, think, began to think a lot about the purpose or the function of music in, 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 in movies. And it became very much part of what I needed to do, and, and, and in order to tell the story.
0: And George kept on telling stories, honing his skills in all things film, and over the coming decades made some incredible films, on top of the brilliant Mad Max sequels. Lorenzo's Oil, 40,000 Years of Dreaming, even his children's movies, uh, Happy Feet and Babe and their sequels, were accessible to adults and genuinely amazing films. But this episode is about Fury Road, so unfortunately, we'll just have to skip ahead to that. And to someone who's got a lot more interesting things to say than me, Wayne Pashley. Hi,
2: I'm Wayne Pashley, uh, supervising sound editor on Mad Max Fury Road. Well, I'll just just quickly go back uh, to 2006, Uh, actually 2005. um, That was the time when Happy Feet uh, was also in production and Mad Max was going to start. So I started on the film way back then. And at that point, George had said to me that this film will have no music at all. That was very exciting. The, The script was basically a graphic novel. It was all storyboards. There was a little bit of interpretive dialogue that was kind of plotted in and out along the way, but effectively it was a graphic novel. From that, those images that Mark Sexton and the team uh, who did the storyboards, from that, it was like reading uh, a book anyway, and, and you, could, you could feel it from those images where this was going to go you know, or where you would like it to go in your own mind. And hopefully, having worked with George many, many years, you know, we go back 30 years now. You know, I had a pretty good idea what George was going to be looking for. And so uh, we knew that um, uh, he was about to shoot in um, up in Broken Hill and all was going to be fine. And But in the meantime, while that was all getting under development, we were also on happy feet. So, um throughout that process, I started to think about what does that mean that the music of the film is going to come from the vehicles. So we started doing a few tests on getting bassoons with broken reeds for exhaust pipes and starting to look at drums and and, get, and looking at great drummers that could be able to do tappets inside an engine. All these sort of things, I started, you know, the mind starts going crazy. So you start to so that was a, that was a huge amount of excitement there. Also, in that early time, we decided to go into the Kennedy Miller archives with the help of um, incredible producer Doug Mitchell. Doug Mitchell was a great you know, fan in, in looking at the idea of, of taking a, a bit of a, a retro approach as well in the idea to make it a, a little bit of a homage to Byron Kennedy, who passed away um, uh, in, during Mad Max 2. So we went into the archives, we found all the old quarter-inch tapes that were, that were recorded back in the 70s, and uh, we had the tapes baked because they were going to fall apart or the oxide was about to fall off. We got ourselves um, a decent reel-to-reel recorder, and we digitised everything. So that material in there, we found the sound of the interceptor, the original interceptor. We found uh, uh, many wild tracks of uh, when Mel Gibson was playing Mad Max, his leather jacket, a whole bunch of stuff from the uh, sawn-off shotguns to the motorbikes to the various other cars. So having uh, collected that as a library, which is now uh, completely uh, digitised and safe for all the rest of eternity, we started to look at that library and go, "Okay, how can we inject this material into the sound effects as well, into the new movie. It's a, a subtle concept, but it's now there is a, a vein going through that film, which is of old. you know. Um, not many people know that that is in there and part of the process from all the new material, but those sort of concepts were building from very early
0: on They didn't end up shooting in Broken Hill, and if Wayne had started concocting Sonic mayhem in his studio back in 2005, uh, he'd be waiting a while to unleash it on the picklock. Mad Max Fury Road took nearly two decades to come to fruition, from George Miller acquiring the rights in the mid-90s to its release in 2015, uh, mired by complications such as uh, the economic impact of 9-11. Of flooding rains in central Australia, but again a whole nother story. So once again we skip forward to 2012 in the Namib desert in Africa. Principal photography had finally begun. Ben Osmo, the sound recordist who was rewarded with an Oscar for his work on Fury Road, finally came head-on with an issue they had been anticipating for some time. Let's hear from a couple of people who can explain this issue a lot better than me.
3: Hi there, my name is David White, I was the sound designer on Mad Max. My name is Mark Washitak,
4: I'm a boom swinger and I worked on Mad Max 1 and Mad Max 4. The location
3: sound recording for Mad Max Fury Road uh, is probably the most difficult sound recording job in history. Let's just say that. Uh, I think Ben Osmo and his team, you know, Mark etc, did an extraordinary job of capturing anything Because for a start, to grab a, you know, what in the film might be a half second shot of, um, you know, camera moving past, you know, Furiosa as she's driving the war rig, you know, to get that shot, you've got, you know, that whole armada of vehicles, they've all got a, you know, let's get an eight mile stretch of desert and let's get all the vehicles up to, you know, 60 miles an hour, 100 kilometres an hour, make sure they get all into the same position as they should be, and let's get the camera vehicle driving past and capturing a shot, eh, eight miles later, you're eight miles away. Turn around, drive all the way back, and then do it again. If there's a line of dialogue being delivered, imagine the problems that the sound recorder has trying to capture something in that environment, let alone the fact you're all moving. Where's the sound person in a van driving, you know, a mile behind with all these satellite connections, the radio mics and all that? I mean, ginormously difficult job.
4: On most films, vehicles are made quiet so we could get the dialogue. Um, But on this, they went the other way because all all of those vehicles were a piece of art. They were stunning. And they were all, you know, V8s and they were all hyped up and made to be loud. And um, like Charlize Theron's vehicle weighed tons. So they needed a big motor to um, pull it. So, you know, and most of the dialogue from the the wives were the dialogue was whispered. Um, So challenges was distance and it all had to be done with radio mics. We would... Choose the principal vehicles that were in shot. that all have um, perhaps uh, a radio mic on their engine uh, for effects, or sometimes a radio mic on the exhaust for it, their effect. Um, and if there are people in shot in foreground, they'd have radio mics for dialogue, um, and then even a couple of open mics on the tracking vehicle for the overall effect of the vehicles. So sometimes, you know, you, you, it could be 14 microphones on a shot. And we thought before we started that we would basically could be stationary while they, you know, did their, their run up and down. But we found out very quickly, even before we started shooting, that we had to be um, on the move. So Ben had to have all his recorders in a vehicle tracking with uh, or near camera. Or the action.
1: I try to work with Ben on every single film we do. He's a great sound recordist, but he's also a great filmmaker. What you want in everyone who works on the film is someone who both does their particular task, their particular discipline, but also above that does whatever they can to get a film made. He became hugely, hugely. Influential on the movie by try by understanding what the movie needed. The biggest thing by far was communication between everybody. Some scenes had, you know, up to a hundred people all in different vehicles. You had actors doing things uh, with a hell of a lot of sound and noise. All the all the vehicles had no exhaust on them, so they were very very loud. So. He found a way to to put earwigs on everybody, on significant people, so that there was a system by which people could communicate to each other, so that I could direct the actors. I was in a remote van following behind, or I was in this thing called the edge arm, which was the, the camera uh, which, which got in amongst the action. And it was very noisy. It was like being in the middle of a wild video game all the way through. And... He had a huge influence on the safety of the film with communication. This wasn't the job of the normal sound recorders. The other th- thing we realised, and he realised, well, if I can't, if I can't shoot, uh, you know, get, get the dialogue, which wasn't the most important thing, I'll make sure I get the best sound for the sound effects guys that we could. I've always found the best action sequences were those that weren't supported by music, but that you could use the sounds of the vehicles almost as their own instruments. Each different vehicle had a different voice and different sounds and so on. So recording the sounds of the vehicles and was was very, very important early on because first of all, the sound of the vehicles on the gravel, the the sound of these exhausts, the, the, the None of these vehicles were legal, road legal. They had to be transported. So, so the, the, if you sat next to the so-called Giga Horse, was, which was a, a, not a V8, a V16, it had, and it was, it was an authentic vehicle. It was two V8 engines together, uh, massive exhaust. I mean, the vibration, the sound of it was enormous. The warring and and all of these vehicles were unique. So there's no point in going out and getting sounds that weren't that weren't authentic. And he put his team together to get those and they and they and they lent they an enormous amount to the to the to, to, to the film. The trucks
4: sounded so good, and that's what George wanted. So we'd take the the vehicles away in between filming and recorded them all for post production because they sounded so great and unique. Well, we we had um uh, we had about seven or eight on sound, so we had the main unit people, and then we designated a sound recordist and a couple of boomies to go out um, every day. Oh, it was only for two or three weeks, uh, with one or two vehicles and uh, record them. Uh, individually, record them approaching and then driving away and then static idling, revving, uh, travelling in the vehicles uh, with an open mic or a a radio mic on the motor, uh, on the exhaust, uh, a radio mic in the cabin for an Atmos travelling, and then motorbikes, the same. Uh, We'd do the same travelling or up and past um, or we'd... uh, We devised a a rear mount wheel on the motorbikes, so uh, a a triangular mount so we could raise the back of the uh, motorbike and rev it without going anywhere. So we did a lot of the tracks on the motorbikes like that.
0: With principal photography over and countless hours of the sounds of revved-up vehicles in their hands, the post-production team was now faced with a new task. How the heck to give a bunch of inanimate objects personality? Hi, I'm
5: Andrew Miller. I'm a sound effects editor on Fury Road.
6: I'm Darren Pasquale. I was a dialogue editor on Mad Max Fury Road.
5: And we both work with Wayne Paschley at Big Bang Sound Design. I remember um, when we first were on and that all came in basically straight off the field recorder and the effects team. And I think some of the dial guys might've helped out where we had to sit down and then go, all right, you take four of the vehicles, you take four of the vehicles. And the way it was all laid up with Ben, it was quite easy to grab that stuff out because he's meticulous. And then we sat down and that's where it was really, really exciting because um, the buzzards at the beginning with the, the spiky cars, that's stuff. That's, that's that sound of all those changes in the gear shifts and the and the turbochars and all that kind of stuff, that is that is purely what was recorded on set. Those cars sound like that. And when we pulled that off in those first um, when we were doing that first ten minute kind of thing, that was that saved so much time. But it was so cool. It was so unique. And then you go, Oh, let's have a listen to the ripsaw and you pull that thing up and that's a weapon. Absolutely like it's like one of the fastest tracked vehicles in the world and it's the 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 the, just the tones that come out of that thing was so exciting because you're like there is so much to work with because it's nothing like like if you got if you pull up we go okay they recorded the you know the 96 magna sedan for us here and you pull up and go it's a normal engine it's very you know, they're designed not to be loud, there's not as many tonal things that you can manipulate as far as when you get into designing and really with plugins and all that kind of stuff, getting into the and getting into the grid of it and pulling out what you can of those recordings. These things were turning up and you're like, there is so much clarity um or variety in how they recorded like the buzzards where there's an internal mic or there would have been one on the exhaust or there's a whole bunch on the turbos inside the engine. You're not dealing with you're dealing with the elements of the car that when you play back you go that's the sound of the car. But now I have eight tracks or sometimes sixteen tracks where I can dig into each of those elements that make up that sound. So if there's a shot and it comes across the bonnet, you've got stuff that you can manipulate to bring out the turbo more and give you perspectives as a camera moves over a car uh, around the back, around the front, over top, or inside the cabin. You've got those that ability to grab that meat and potatoes 70% or with the buzzards was a lot more. Um, that was so exciting because you were just like, one, it's going to save us a lot of time, but two, it already gives you an idea of how to approach, say, a sound or something like that because it's real. And that was really cool. When
2: myself and the team uh, here at Big Bang all came onto the picture, you know, at that point it was like, okay, here we are. What is our brief? What, 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 what would you like us to deal with? The brief came back, uh, we want you to do all the vehicles and all the weapons. So here's the good news, is because when we saw the number of vehicles and the concept that, which, as I said, went way back to 2006, 2004, whatever it was, uh, prior to there uh, being any concept that there will be music aside from the doof wagon in the film, there was going to be no music, is that we knew that, that these every vehicle had to be a character in the film and had to be representational to the actual character themselves, be it the bullet farmer with the ripsaw, uh, be it um, uh, Morton Joe in his Bigfoot thing, yeah, uh, yeah, the, people uh, the people eater and all those things. So you knew that each, each, each vehicle had to be representational to the character that was driving them as found items you know, in a post-apocalyptic world and to have a unique sound. When I heard Ben Osmo's recordings from set, yes, dialogues were hard to capture. Of course they are. It was never going to be an easy situation unless those vehicles were stopped. But what Ben did for us was one of the most enormous uh, uh, gifts from that film, which was the vehicle recordings, both in its detail whilst shooting uh, main unit or whether it was offstage collection of each of these vehicles um, ...in between takes or or off, off uh, you know, in, in his downtime. Um, when I heard the amount of recordings he had done for Every Vehicle... ...and the uniqueness of the recordings... ...I went to George and said, here's the good news... ...is that Ben's material is going to lay the foundation to 70%... ...of what we need to do on top of that... ...in order to give the, the, that extra character... So for without Ben's team uh, doing that material, it would have been one of the most difficult
5: jobs in sound effects, hands down. I did um, weaponry and bullets and gun foley, like kind of stuff. And so I was lucky because I got a lot of foley from the foley guys. But that was maybe, I'd say, 40% of the final sound for that foley item because it wasn't like, it was very a real sound. Whereas often um, it needs to be heightened for like what George wants to hear, like say thumbs on stuff, where a thumb on a, from foley sounds like, you know, and it's on a war rig. How do you make that come through, that thumb on the trigger or whatever, or cocking back something come through without it actually just being a foley element? Some of the trickier bits was probably the bullet farmer attack on the war rig, where I had, um, there was perspectives I had to deal with, because the, the bullet farmer was quite a while away in the fog. And he's just shooting randomly, and he gets blinded, all that kind of stuff. Um, and in that scene, from memory, I think there was the, the sniper rifle scene on that thing. That was that was quite challenging because George wanted his note was I want to hear the bullet traveling away, and you're like, okay, but bullets travel very quickly, and often you hear the reverberance coming back you with that initial shot. But I think with with some type of bullets, as it travels, it's breaking the sound barrier, so you also hear. Those reflections coming back to you after the initial shot. So there was a lot of like, okay, I've got to make this sweet kind of like big sniper rifle shot. Bit of tinnitus, um, you know, loading, loading it, putting it on Max's shoulder so it's heavy and you know, it's sort of gritty and it's old because nothing's new. You uh, you do rely a lot on libraries or things that you can use that sound like um, guns, like you know, I think like um, some things like like uh, like pneumatic. Um, Staple guns and stuff like they got great sliders and stuff, which you can kind of trick to sound like weapons. But it's a very distinct sound, especially with weapons. Like people know what those are just through watching films for years, or if you're a gun person, you know what that sounds like. I did have a discussion one guy with an army guy about um the sound of some bullets. I did uh, bullet shells hitting the floor in that water divider film, and he said they're the wrong caliber. I was like, well, you're the first person who picked up on that, but thank you. <laughs> that was really that was cool. But um. The, yeah, the sniper rifle was really cool because I had to design a way that I could have, um, of course, a big, big, almost like cannon-like explosion, but then uh, create its own um, tail of that sort of shot, which then I could use pitching and time manipulation to kind of bend it downwards as, as the bullet was sort of traveling away. But as I was doing that, also have... Um, rather than a, a plug-in doing a, like a delay return with reverb and that kind of stuff for reflections, I was cutting in and designing my own reflections so I could offset them t- sort of slightly but then also then decay those with a bit of a pitch down all that kind of stuff. So then when the mixer gets it, it was like probably less work for them to come up with these really detailed sort of reflections that all slowly pitched slightly differently to get all those different delays back from the bullet traveling away. But um, also with a way that I could then go we're not in a final situation, George, but this is what it should sound like when we get there without um, just doing a gunshot and going, oh, Mixers, can you do the delays and reverb and stuff like that? He was able to hear finished sort of sequence for that gun and approve it, which was cool. Um, The other tricky parts in that was perspectives with guns, uh, with the the bullet farmer, he had like, I can't remember, I think he had like three or four different types of machine guns all firing off in, in distant perspectives. And then later he had like grenade launchers and stuff like that. But then you're cutting in a way that you're doing perspective, cutting between uh, Max and the Warwick's perspective, cutting back to the close up on Bullet Farm to so be really aggressive and loud and like putting in little trigger sounds because that little tick you might not necessarily hear in the explosion, but it just adds something to your ear that you feel. Um, and this like kind of makes it a bit more lethal than just a standard, like here's a gunshot. That scene, I think from memory, would have been oh, easily like 700 tracks in the end. Everything that is in a film has a reason
2: to be there. So the first step really for me is to look at character, number one, because it's human storytelling. And so dialogue is primacy always because that's where the subtlety and intent of the story is in the first place. So I always look at character and then I look at overall thematic reasons for the story itself and through theme and through character, you can start to find the sonic interpretation that hopefully will lead to, you know, uh, helping the story through and uh, guiding the audience uh, to to the, the, the whole reason why it's been made in the first place.
6: Once the movie had been shot and edited and everything and we were going through and queuing all of the ADR and crowds and stuff that needed to be recorded, we also had that original s- sort of storyboards with us while we were doing that so that any notes that we'd made during that initial process, we'd sort of get reminded of if, you know, if we'd sort of forgotten so you could get to certain parts of the film where you, you know, saw the storyboard which, you know, looked like what was on the screen and you'd written something about, you know, one of the characters in the, you know, in the back of the truck or whatever that you're just like, oh, yeah, it'd be good to get something from them or hear a cry from outside or, you know, just stuff from, yeah, that original concept that we could bring back if it hadn't been captured sort of on the day. One of the things that I remember was going in and doing the crowd recordings and we had, you know, a few days just full crowd recordings, so people in there screaming, yelling, all sorts of attacking happening. It was full on and, yeah, I just remember, um, yeah, being in that and I actually came out of that room and we went to go and have something to eat. And I had to leave because I could hear everything. It was all coming on me. I completely wigged out just because we'd been focusing on it so much all that day. <laughs> That's one of the stronger, stronger memories I have of that was just coming out of that, just going, oh, my gosh, I can't I can't handle noise right now. But um, that, because of the detail that was needed for the crowds as well, like to tell the story, and to help kind of build suspense and build, you know, the kind of the danger and everything, it was, you know, we had to be very, um, yeah, very precise with that too and to have a lot of people in the room to try and organise who was going to do what voice, who was going to be, you know, doing this, that and the next thing. Oh, hang on, there's a guy up in the background now that wasn't there before, you know, like uh, just kind of, yeah, making sure that we covered everything that was needed to to kind of tell the story and make it, yeah, interesting and scary when it needed to be. And
2: Yeah. I also think that uh, one of the biggest challenges too, you're asking um, these cast members in an 80-hour environment to, to be precise on every utterance. So it's not just the words, dialogue itself, all the breathing, all the grunting, all the movement, everything. Darren and I went to London to record... Uh, Tom Hardy, and what a champion, because he totally got it. He totally knew that he was going to get a continuity of performance by recreating, even if he wasn't speaking English, but recreating a a, a sonic interpretation of what was happening through grunts and vox and breath. And And all the cast members, Charlie is the same, everybody had to do it. And that sort of precise detail, much like Andrew with the with the bullets, which sounded like a simple scene to do, incredibly complex, incredibly complex to tell the story, and and uh, and it went to every breath, as well. And um, I think that was probably one of the biggest challenges. And to, and the cast were great because they bought into it. They once I'm sure it was a shock to them what they were going to have to physically reperform, physically reperform. Uh, in a ADR stage, but they once you're in, they 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 bought it, and that they went for the war boys and everybody. And so, you know, it's like a lot of people might say they look at the film and go, "Ah, oh, there's no dialogue in that film, or very little dialogue in that film." Well, when you start to break it down, it's
1: months and months of recreation. I think what also happened, an interesting thing happened on on Fury Road that had not happened before. What used to happen in the past is it, it, it's a kind of triangle. People would load up with often as many tracks as they could so we could get into the mix. You might have some very elaborate effects, might have a hundred and over, you know, close to a hundred or even over a hundred tr- tracks, which you'd have to mix down into some ultimate sound effect. That created a huge amount of work and it was often very. Mushy. It wasn't specific. It was, it was exciting to do, but but way too much work. What I decided to do with In Fury Road is to do the opposite, to pick one key sound at any moment, which was basically basically the thing to be much more surgical about it. Too. That was the, basically the sound which was going to enhance the moment or take the audience through an experience and forget all about the supporting sounds until you have that sound. Um, and then, then build around it, not just start with, you know, with, it's like making a meal, not start with everything in the grocery store, um, but, but actually start with one key ingredient and support it with everything
0: else. That's something really important I learnt about sound design in the making of this podcast, is that the little things matter. Designing massive cars and crazy bullet sounds is cool and everything, but the presence or manipulation of even seemingly really basic and mundane sounds can have a huge impact on the drama as well.
1: The chains in the fight. Max spends the whole movie, or the first 20 minutes of the movie, basically, like a shackled dog, and his chain to Nux, and that chain was very, very critical to the story. I always loved the movie uh, Samson and Delilah with Victor Mature, Cecil B. and Jamel, and the one thing that really struck me about it, was one of the first time, as I said, in the 50s people really got to understand and play with sound much better if you look at Samson Delilah, Victor Mature, who played Samson, he, a lot of his power came from he, uh, the sound effects, the chains that he wore, the amulets that he had when he was chained, when he was captured as Samson, were were very, very memorable. And so I, taking a cue from that, I said, well, the chains on Max are really, really critical. They've got to be accurate and they've got to have very powerful sounds because almost unconsciously you are aware that he is a prisoner.
3: So the chains are a massive, massive theme of the film. Who is Max? He's a guy that's trapped by his past, so he's imprisoned by his past. He's wrapped in chains metaphorically. When we meet him um, early on in the film, we don't really see his face once he's captured he's got a mask on you know it's, it's all about being claustrophobic it's all about being trapped it's all about being imprisoned not by the war boys and stuff but by what's going on in his head i mean this this so much of the film is about that about where we wind up trapping ourselves and our struggle to free ourselves from that were the chains important oh. We went over and over about the chains, you know. So first off, chains are incredibly hard to record, okay, because they're metallic, and if you use a condenser microphone which has, you know, sharp response, it's very spiky sound. So you need to sort of use dynamic microphones, which are a lot slower, but if you've got a dynamic microphone too close to the chain, it sounds like your ears too close to the chain. So it's a really, really hard thing to record is a believable chain. It might sound crazy, but I can tell you that it was a struggle to record those chains. We had lots of Foley recordings of chains and uh, I went into the, a lot of the sound effects for the film um, that I put in were things that I recorded out in the countryside in a natural acoustic, so not in a studio. So, for example, I'd do all these LCR recordings, you know, so I would have a centre microphone, a left and right microphone, and get big chains, and I'd do actions with them on dirt or, you know, outside. The thing about those recordings, whilst they're a little bit noisy because there's stuff going around them outside, they're very real. So it, it was kind from for me, the Foley stuff was a little bit too clean and didn't really sit once I had that sort of grungy, dynamic, bit messy, a bit of wind in the back, you know, not perfect recordings, but believable. So, you know, for example, that scene where Max gets out of the, the dirt and everything, there's a combination. There's, there's Foley from two different studios plus all of the stuff that I've recorded to do The Chain. And The Chain features in that scene massively massively, and getting that right. I mean, the car door stuff. I mean, that was, you know, I broke a door off a car and did all those actions in dirt and stuff so that it sounded real outside. This is a film where we had so many inputs to the mix. Like, it's
5: possible given enough time for one person to build an entire soundtrack in a film and the music if they want, given enough time. But my thing is, it won't sound as good, I think, unless you're in a team.
6: Being a part of a team at Big Bang like we all you know we all completely trust each other and we all know that everyone's going to be taking care of their set assignments and so when you know we're watching the film run through for the first time Wayne will sort of say all right you know this car is going to Rick or this you know plane or whatever is going to Miller and you know this horse is going to Fabian and so we all know that if wherever that horse comes on screen, Fabian's got it covered.
5: And that's the thing that excites me most now is I know what I can do, but I'm always very, very excited to hear what the other guys on the team do because that will often go, I would, did not see that coming or I didn't think of that, and going, oh, that's. And then you get to talk to them and go, how the hell did you do that? That's what I love about Posts. I love the team environment. And George was very open to, yeah. to a lot of these ideas,
6: yeah. very collaborative
2: yeah. in that, that regard. Yeah, yeah. I
6: get it, see if it works. If it does, great. If it doesn't, you know, we can drop it. It's, you know, it's all material that we can try and experiment with, you know, which is exciting. Just like he is with the picture, he's meticulous with sound. It's amazing because, yeah, like when he sort of says, oh, you know, that that is really important. You're sitting there just going, really? Sometimes you're just like, but how are we going to, how, how is that meant to play above all of that? But then when, when it's all together and playing, you just go, well, that's why... You're George Miller, like, yeah. yeah
3: I like to be, well, not like to be, I think that it's an invaluable thing for any film in post-production to have a producer that's on board, a director that's on board, uh, a picture editor that's on board, a sound designer that's on board, working together, communicating. Because what happens is that you realise along the way um, what's working and not working, and those voices can assist in you know, diluting something or I should say make it more accurate as a, as a piece. And particularly working with uh, such great people as George Miller and Margaret Sixall, uh, these are people who not only being amazing um, are totally into collaboration and will listen to people's opinions and go, oh, really? Is that what's happening? Oh, okay. We, you know, that's, that's the ideal not uh, a scenario where people are going, oh, no, 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 that's my idea, blah, 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 which um, one may expect of a person like um, or people that really know what they want. But George certainly encapsulates for me the type of director who not only knows what he wants but uh, is open to reality and to feedback. The filmmaking game and uh, you know television drama and everything, all it is is storytelling. That's all that's happening. So to tell a story, uh, you want to be paying attention to the storyteller. Now, if you're paying attention to a storyteller and the storyteller is film, guess what you don't want to notice? You don't want to notice the picture cutting. You don't want to notice the cinematography. You don't want to notice the costumes. You don't want to notice the sound. You don't want to notice any of that stuff. All you want to pay attention to is the story and the characters, full stop. So it's the job of... Every department, not just sound, to be entirely invisible. If you can be completely invisible such that the audience is invested in the story, you have succeeded. If no one notices a soundtrack that I've done, brilliant. That means that's a successful soundtrack. You know, because it's just serving the story. It, that's the job of sound, <laughs> like the other departments. Serve the story. That's it. Serve the story. If people just focused on that, we'd have far better
0: soundtracks. (laughs) Seriously. I thought that was a really nice sentiment to end the podcast on because you know what? The first time I watched Fury Road, I wasn't thinking, wow, that's a cool sounding car or like, uh, nice chains, man, uh, even though I'm really into sound design. No, I wasn't thinking at all all. I was under the spell. I was enthralled in the way that only a really gripping piece of art can do to me. And when when I was doing like my research for this, um, it took me several watch throughs to actually detach myself enough from it to critically think about it. I, ju- I just kept getting distracted by how visceral and intense that goddamn film is. And on that note, I'm going to wrap it up now. There's so much from the interviews I didn't have time to include in this episode, which is why when I have the time, I'll be releasing all the unedited versions of every interview on the website, if you're interested. That's the interviews with George Miller, uh, the boom op Mark Washitek, uh, sound designer David White, and the group interview with the team at Big Bang, Wayne Pashley, Darren Pasquill, and Andrew Miller. You'll be able to download them all at uh, www.soundperspectivepodcast.com, where you'll also find the other episodes of the podcast, upcoming information, social media, contact, all that jazz. Um, In addition to that, if you're at all curious about Ben Osmo and his career in general, uh, I'll have an episode just with him out soon where we talk about a lot more than just Mad Max. Endless thanks to the people who agreed to be interviewed, to the students and staff at AFTERS who I'm apparently not allowed to mention by name, but without whom this wouldn't have happened. You know who you are, and I'm very grateful. Thanks to Jamika Blackman for help with editing, Lily Ford for graphic design, and for the stills photography, thanks to Julian Patu, Jordan Benjamin, and Lily Ford. Lewis and Atko did the key artwork. Check the website for their Instagrams. A general big thanks to Rachel Gill, Jack Swart, David Hoey, Sue Yun, Yun and my family for their support. Join me next time on Sound Perspective for an interview with Dean Hurley, David Lynch's sidekick in sound.